Good morning. This is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. Nine fifty one AM. Good morning. First of March, twenty nineteen. And uh yeah, kind of, all kinds of neat stuff's happening. Um I'm gonna begin with some non Bitcoin stuff because Tim Wise over last overnight, last night and said the following about Alex Jones on the Joe Rogan experience. And if you haven't caught that thing that pretty much set, <laughs> set the internet on fire yesterday, um, you're, you're, you're missing it. That thing as near as I can tell, uh, Alex Jones on Joe Rogan lasted for four hours and 40 minutes, somewhere around that. <clears throat> that is a long time. That, I mean, even for Joe Rogan who, typically cuts two hour, two and a half hour, you know, uh, episodes, four hours, over four hours of Alex Jones ranting. I mean, the Jones man was in top, top form is all I can say. Top form, top, top, tippy top form. And say what you want about, (laughs) say what you want about Alex Jones. Um, I used to listen to him all the time. Uh, and the only, you know, and, and really what I, I just start, stopped listening to him because he started getting way too weird and he started really pushing, you know, nutraceuticals and, and health pills and all that kind of stuff. And, and just the whole demeanor changed and things just got out of hand. And finally the straw, the straw that broke the camel's back was that the guy's got no answers. I mean, it's, it's hard to get, you know, okay, well, all these problems exist. What do you do? Well, he's, you know, Alex doesn't really give any answers. I don't, you know, and I kind of don't expect him to, man. I mean, the the guy's kind of an entertainer. And if you haven't seen some of the clips from the Joe Rogan experience yesterday, oh my God, talk about entertainment. Um, that, you know, and, and like I said, the reason I'm saying that you can say what you want about Alex Jones or people who listen to Alex Jones or who will listen or who has, you know, have listened in the past, um, nobody deserves what Mr. Jacob, the Tim man wise has to say about him because this is really, I'm sorry, this is just, this is ridiculously over the top. Tim says, in a just world, Alex Jones would be forcibly medicated. And the fact that Joe Rogan gives him airtime makes him no better. 
Stop listening to irresponsible people who give airtime to cretins like this. Rogan's hip, I want to smoke weed and I'm an atheist shtick, doesn't make him okay. It's the first sentence. In a just world, Alex Jones would be forcibly medicated. Just sit on that for a, for a while. Think about what it means to be forcibly medicated. Um, just, the, you know, and this Tim Wise dude is some self-proclaimed alt-right fighting, or alt-right Nazi fighting person since 1989 and blocking 4chan, 8chan trolls and peppy memes, and he hates white nationalism since tw- apparently since 2016. I don't know. The guy is, you know, he's got a blue check mark from Twitter. So, you know, and 80,000 followers and eight, so 80,000 followers are probably sitting around stroking their goatees at a, you know, over their lattes at freaking Starbucks with their Soviet era or Cuban like beret with a red star on it going, yeah, forcibly medicate these sons of bitches. Really? Forcibly medication or forcible medication. Just think, just think, just for a little bit, what being forcibly medicated actually means. And then go look up the history of forced medication. And you're probably not going to like what you see. All right. So it doesn't matter what the hell Alex says. It doesn't matter what the hell any of these people say. You don't need to worry about what they're saying until they actually do something. And if you can't handle that, then, you know, I'm, I, I hate, I hate the fact that you live in a world where you're not, you know, living with everybody who's clones of yourself because people are different and they have different ideas. And I mean, sure. Is Alex Jones crazier than a bed bug nowadays? Yeah. Do I think he needs to be forcibly medicated? Hell no. We wouldn't, A, we'd lose the entertainment value. My God almighty, that loss alone would, is enough to scare the crap out of me. Anyway, just, you know, when you, when you see people say things like forcibly medicated and they're like all like this progressive liberal person, stop and think about forced. And, you know, is that really, is that really liberal? Anyway, um, let's get into the stack. First thing I want to bring up is this dude, Jason Smith, at I Wear a Hoodie. Uh, yesterday, he dropped a pretty long uh, tweet thread about the, his woes with uh, the Lightning Network, and he's he's getting kind he's getting savaged, you know, pretty good. But you know, when I tweeted, I retweeted it out, and I said the following about it: "said this thread is an honest take on Lightning Network UX issues." While I can understand much of the sentiment here, I don't think we're five years away from a smooth UX. Still, the guy's being honest about his experience, and I think it's important to understand his snag points. And I think it is important to read this dude's thread. I mean, I like Lightning Network. I disagree that we're as far away from a smoother UX, you know, user experience than 
than he thinks we are. Um, I, I again, I go back to my usual bitch point about a modicum of patience for a technology that is ten years old, and people people will say, "But the internet had." X users in 10 years. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. In case you guys are wondering, the first email ever was sent in 1969. That was the, you know, essentially we're talking about the birth of the internet or rather the first, the first digital message was, was 69 between, um, because the ethernet protocol, which is layer, the layer one protocol had been done. And three, like at least two, if not three computers were hooked up and they were able to pass messages to each other. And it wasn't much longer after that, that, uh, email protocol, you know, came up and we get all these layers and these layers and these layers. So somebody who says that the internet had, you know, X amount of people using it. And that X is over like a couple of million, the 10 years after it started. No, what they're talking about is 10 years after Netscape. Because even 10 years after AOL, unless, you know, you think a message board is of terrible financial importance, then yeah, even AOL had more users than Bitcoin, right? But a message board is nothing. I mean, freaking GeoCities. I mean, the, the, the majority of the applications involved in the early internet, even after AOL, was just, it was just playtime. Playtime with Bobo or whatever the or bedtime for Bonzo. That's what I was thinking of. It's it, it's unimportant. It's unimportant. So while I I want to read this guy, you know, this guy's tweet, because it has some good information about user, you know, what his user experience right now is in compare, you know, in the context of what he's trying to do. Um, and I think that if you don't listen to credible, not, I don't know if the guy's credible or not. I'm saying that the argument is credible just because it's, it's laid out well. It has, it has good context. It has concrete examples of what can't be done. And I think when those things come along, even if you disagree with the guy's premise, um, I think, you know, from a user experience standpoint, if you're not listening to your customers, um, then you're you're doing yourself and your future customers a huge disservice. So let's let's see what this guy's ranting about here. He starts out um, here is or here's my honest feedback on the Lightning Network in Bitcoin. I run a media company. It's based in Australia. I employ some people in the Philippines to help with back end stuff and some grunt work. I want to pay them with Bitcoin, but there's a problem. The fees just get too high. Okay. I had to completely write off the idea of paying my staff with Bitcoin during December the twenty, uh, December twenty seventh uh, through January eighteenth. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, December seventeenth through January eighteenth, when it was costing absurd, absurd, absurd amounts to get transactions confirmed in a reasonable time. What concerned me the most was when I weighed into the block size debate and argued for higher blocks. I was told that I was doing it wrong or something and just to wait. Well, I wanted to use Bitcoin now. 
but I trusted and waited. Eventually, my patience was rewarded. One day, Lightning was ready to use. I tried a custodial app, which was easy to use, and also spun up my own node using Perry Rochard's uh, node, node launcher. I was sold pretty quickly. I could easily send and receive small payments online. I bought some stickers, and I was relieved that this wasn't vaporware and Bitcoin had something of a chance at scaling. But then I started to hit some snags. I won money on online betting sites, but couldn't withdraw the money because I needed incoming channels connected to my node with money on the other side of the equation. I was like, what the F? I eventually managed to find a service that would open up channels back to me for a fee and was able to receive money again. Then I started trying to close some channels to get money back out of Lightning. God, what a hassle. Now I'm told some of the Lightning problems will be solved with certain developments. But I assure you, the fundamental structure of Lightning doesn't suit me at all for my business. I want to pay my staff each month. Businesses can't leave money tied up in Lightning channels. Cash flow issues in actual businesses won't allow that kind of behavior. So I have, I'd have to create a new Lightning channel every month to pay my staff anyway. So I'd be doing on-chain transactions anyway. But the staff doesn't get paid enough to warrant $100 fees uh, for each channel. Plus, what are they What are they going to do once I've paid them via light, Lightning Network? There's no way I can expect them to run a node of their own. I honestly have no more love for Lightning at all. I don't see it solving problems of scaling in a way that businesses or consumers actually function. In my frustration, I've gone back through a lot of the scaling debates and high fee discussions. I can confirm that there's been a lot of these high fees are great posts from poor pro-lightning folks and even Bitcoin isn't for poor people stuff. Frankly, I cannot see any logic of the argument that we need to keep nodes small so poor people can have them when the fees to actually use the Bitcoin network price, even the middle class, uh, even the middle class out of using it, it's nonsense. I'm not interested in waiting another five years before I can actually use Bitcoin in my company. I don't want custodial lightning. And I know that once there's another bull market, arbitrage opportunities are going to be prolific and demand on blockchain space will be high. I hope I'm wrong about lightning and there's going to be a magical fix that will allow sending and receiving infinite amounts non-custodially without needing to trust third parties in a user-friendly manner. But I can't see it. I give it. I gave it an honest shot, but it was a, such a hassle. Even if someone was happy to do all the channel openings and crap, it's years away from reaching a user-friendly state. I can't ask local merchants to go and buy server hardware to be able to accept this shit. It needs to run on an iPad. Only a custodian solution would work. So there's one of two things that will happen. Everyone goes custodial. Or we get bigger blocks. If we go custodial, game's effed. If we get big blocks, we can actually use this thing. I also run Bitcoin training seminars about Bitcoin. I won't be running anymore until I can actually see where this thing is heading. This high fee bullshit makes the network unusable for normal people and lightning is not easy to use, which any scaling solution needs to be. I strongly, I'm strongly starting to think Daniel Krawitz was right. I've been listening to an echo chamber of people who have never run a business before, and I hope Daniel can answer more questions I have about his opinions of Bitcoin. And that's the last of it. 
And uh, the Daniel Krawitz, actually, there's several problems. I mean, clearly, there's several problems with this whole thing. But the is the you know talking about the opening and the closings, and you know when we look at just strip away the fact that he's going, he's bringing back up the scaling debate, and he's bringing it back up in the exact same way that it was always brought up. In the midst of some of the lowest fees we've ever seen, he's talking about hundred dollar fees. Yeah, I know, I get it. But let's that's that's the rhetoric of that's the rhetoric part of this thread. The the meat of the thread talk, you know, is talking about um paying paying employees, you know, doing the things that a business needs to do. The these those things that he was saying, that's real shit. Now the rest of it, uh, it's you know it. So the rest of it is actually so bad that this entire thing, you never know, may have been put together at the behest of somebody who wants to reengage with the with the scaling debate. I don't know. I'm not going to conjecture as such, because the the real issue here is to to try to dive past the layer of scum on top of the lake to get to the real nuggets that are inside the actual water. And there's, there's some nuggets here. So don't, you know, don't savage Jason too much. And, you know, just, just because he's bringing back up the scaling debate for the umpteenth time. Uh, We've all heard these, these arguments before we've pretty much put them to bed. Uh, there's a possibility that fees will get, you know, get into a crushing state of of unusability if there's another bull run. We may not have another bull run. That may have been it, folks. We don't know. Nobody can. Nobody knows. That's God. That's what I keep saying. Is like there's no way to tell what the hell's going to happen in the future. One thing that I I do do disagree with him on on like three points. I wouldn't be listening to anything Daniel says. He's compromised. Two. The whole thing with fees, bringing up hundred dollar fees when I'm paying one satoshi per per byte or per kilobyte or whatever it is, is like some of the lowest fees that I've ever seen for a month in the history of the blockchain network that is Bitcoin, actual Bitcoin ticker ticker symbol BTC, the one that's been running for ten straight years. There's been a month of fees that were so high that it sucked. And yeah, that's going to, that's, I mean, missing a, a, a month of employee pay period, that'll crush you. It will. I mean, that's, that's just a fact. That's not my personal opinion on shit. Should you have a backup plan? Yes, you absolutely cert- Certainly you should have a backup plan in case things get like out of hand. But when you're talking about something in the now that was a long time ago, then you're not being very, um, very genuine about the presentation of that particular argument. So there are some problems with this Jason Smith thing. Um, if you haven't seen it, it'll be, uh, in, in my curated Twitter timeline, you can get to that in the show notes on up the stack. Um, I ran across a guy named, uh, Jeff Goldberg, a couple of, I don't know, like last week, maybe a couple of weeks ago. And, um, I started following him, started listening to what, what he was saying about like, uh, doing analyses on Twitter accounts. Um, he first came to my attention with an article that he wrote about the XRP army 
And I think he actually, he actually wrote that one a while, you know, a while back, but I hadn't really dug into it. And, uh, last night I did and oh boy. Okay. So this, this is a, I'm looking at a medium post that Jeff Goldberg wrote. Um, and it, it's, uh, entitled, I made a bet with Ripple's CTO, David Schwartz, dissecting a key Twitter account from the XRP army authored by Jeff Goldberg. Now he did this a long time ago. This is back in August. This is last summer, man. This is, you know, good God, you know, August 28th, 2018. Um, it is fascinating for a couple of reasons. One for me, it's fascinating because it's using visual representations of uh, Twitter accounts, the and the way those Twitter accounts are related to each other, given raw data that you can scrape from Twitter using Twitter's API, so that you can get right to the fire hose of every single tweet, filter it by what it is that you want to look for, create a database, and then you know of, over a certain period of time on what and I mean not just by users. You, I mean I'm I, I am starting to use this graphing technique myself. Um, and you can you can build these graphs uh, in a myriad of, in a myriad of ways, looking for whatever it is that you can even imagine looking for. And the the reason I bring it up is we're going to see we'll be seeing a lot more of this type of visual representation of social networks over the years to come. Because now we've, we've got to the point where we have computers that are large enough that are also affordable by a greater amount of normal people instead of like databases and high, you know, high computer, you know, high compute power at universities and whatnot where this stuff used to lie. And, and pretty much you never saw any of this data because it was always going to be going to a, uh, you know, a research paper that was going to be uh, published in, in a science, science journal that most people don't know about, don't care about, can't get, something like that. I remember Aaron Schwartz every single time that I think of this. If you don't know who Aaron Schwartz is, look him up. Um, <clears throat> anyway, this so this whole thing, um, is it's huge. Now, Medium says it's 16-minute read. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. And I, I guess Medium only looks at word count when uh, when they're doing when they're when the algorithm is trying to assess how long it's going to take to read. Set aside an hour for this one, minimum, minimum. And if you don't know if you don't know Dick about scientific visualization at all, um, well, one, you probably won't read it. But two, if you're still interested, it's going to take you two or three hours because you'll need to read it three or four times, maybe do some research on the side. If you do know anything about what this, uh, what this, how this gentleman is parsing this data out, it is absolutely fascinating, but it will absolutely take you an hour to get through it because there are huge graphics and looking at the graphics, just looking at them to try to figure out what is going on. You can get lost in these things for minutes at a time. First, they're beautiful. Second, there is so much data represented here 
as far as the XRP army. And for those who don't know, XRP and Ripple are the same thing. I don't care what anybody says. They are the same thing. They are the same thing. They are the same thing. I don't care if one's a token and one's a company. They are both interrelated, connected at the hip. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. Well, that's the way it is. So this is an analysis of uh, all these Twitter accounts that have XRP in their name, specifically looking at this one giant account called Giant Gox and trying to parse out, are all these people real? Are there this many accounts? Like all of a sudden there's just this shit ton of people that are fawning over Ripple like it's the next thing and it's not it's just a shit coin how did so the whole point is how did this the whole thing you know get so big and jeff's he starts off with the premise that he kind of doesn't think that all these accounts are real and given what we read in this particular piece uh this i made a bet with ripple cto david schwartz i'd I think there's strong, really, really strong evidence that the majority of the XRP army are bots, fake, autonomous bots that are created probably by a bot itself. That's that's the thing where you've got AI that self, you know, or not AI, but automation that can be self-replicatory is a to create a Twitter bot whose job it is to create more Twitter bots, right? And that kind of, he doesn't suggest that part in it, but the sheer amount of accounts that are uncovered that seem to be just not anything other than, I don't know, like, a really non-quality Twitter account that doesn't seem to have anything else to do other than tweet about XRP. And it looks pretty clear that the majority of the XRP army are, are bots. There are real people in the XRP army. They are not bots. They are not NPCs. I get that. That's fine. But given the, the, the data represented in this, in this particular medium piece, uh, it's pretty, pretty, it, I don't know. It's pretty conclusive. I'm sorry. It just, it just is, but it's also my Twitter feed. Um, if one of the thing, one of the other reasons I wanted to bring this up is that this data science stuff is really near and dear to my heart. I've got a, a pretty deep background in geographic information systems, which is essentially the exact same thing, except in geographic information systems, there there's this one thing that's always present, and that's a map, usually a map of the world. And all the events that, that are, you know, all the databases that are parsed into that uh, or all the information that's parsed into the databases that are used for GIS have some kind of, you know, lat long um, uh, latitude and longitude uh, data component so that you can place them on the map so you can see their geographic relationship to each other. But that's just one piece of information when you get into a lot of this stuff and there's a lot of people that don't enable location services on Twitter. So doing a lat long analysis, doing a GIS analysis on Twitter accounts is kind of worthless, so to say. Um, but there's all, I mean, there's, if you delete the map out of a GIS, 
then you have an inform, you know, basically a, instead of a geographic information system, you've got an information system. And that's what these, these tools are. Uh, the one that Jeff is posting uh, pictures of is uh, from a software package called Graphistry, if you want to go look at it. I use Gephi, G-I-P-H-I, or I'm sorry, G-E-P-H-I, and that one's free, a little buggy, but it's it's fully it's fully functional. It does not have all the statistical analysis tools that stuff like, you know, other packages that are really built to do analysis and not visual representation, but it has enough to get started. And I, I don't know, it's got to, it's up and coming this whole, this, this whole social, you know, social network analysis tools. Um, it's that it's not only is it a thing, it's a industry it's getting, it's going to be a real big industry and it's going to get to the point where it overflows the boundaries of black ops or, you know, people that are spying on, on everybody to just, you know, having a store that says, can you analyze my, my brand's Twitter account and other social media and tell me how I can either reach more people or if I'm saturated, all this kind of stuff. There's some real useful stuff that everyday people can use to be able to look at their own social media or the social media of others and kind of analyze what's going on. And it's, I got to tell you, man, stuff's kind of fascinating. So anyway, uh, that's enough of that. Let's get into this motherboard piece. Um, motherboard has a article out. Former hacking team members are now spying on the blockchain for Coinbase. If you've been living under a rock, Coinbase bought a company called Neutrino, and most of their founders have this really dark, dark past. Terroristic, information terrorism past. Uh, let's get into this one. Last week, cryptocurrency industry giant Coinbase sparked outrage when it announced that it had purchased a small startup called Neutrino. Normally, such an acquisition wouldn't make any ways, but Neutrino isn't your average startup. The company was founded by three former employees of Hacking Team, a controversial Italian surveillance vendor that was caught several times selling spyware to governments with dubious human rights records such as Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, and Sudan. Neutrino develops technology for law enforcement and financial institutions to investigate and track track transactions on the blockchain, the shared public ledger that tracks the movement of tokens in the ecosystem. Coinbase is one of the largest platforms for buying and selling cryptocurrency in the world, so it sees a lot of transactions on its exchange. The company claims to be able to monitor and track not just Bitcoin, but also supposedly privacy-oriented and harder-to-track coins such as Monero. In 2017, the company was able to conclude that the North Korean hackers behind the destructive ransomware WannaCry cashed out their Bitcoin and turned it into Monero. Marco Valeri, also known as Naga in the hacking community, and Alberto Ognargi, no way I'm pronouncing that last name, <clears throat> known as Alor, are Neutrino's chief research officer and chief technology officer, respectively. In the early 2000s, Valerian Ornagi, okay, Ornagi, I, I can do that, developed Ettercap, the software that was the foundation of Hacking Team's technology. 
Giancarlo Russo, Neutrino's CEO, used the hacking team's chief or used to be the hacking team's chief operating officer. Coinbase's decision to partner with people who used to develop spyware for governments didn't sit well with some blockchain industry players. Quote, when I said it would be great to have more InfoSec people involved in the crypto space, I didn't mean the largest U.S. exchange should acquire an analysis tools company run by a former hacking team member. But here we are, end quote, says Amber Baldit, CEO of blockchain startup Clover and the former blockchain program lead at J.P. Morgan Chase. She tweeted on Sunday. Okay, so that's you can go read the rest of that. It's a long, long, long art. It's a pretty long article, and there's another one that they have that is also talking about um, about this issue. But what I wanted to bring on board here is motherboard themselves. Uh, I motherboard seems to be on the right side of this whole thing. Um, I guarantee you New York times and, uh, like others are reporting this as just sort of just another walk in the park, you know, kind of thing. Motherboard seems to get the gravity of this situation. Coinbase has acquired a terrorist hacking group that has you been, that has sold their technology to foreign governments to spy and repress on their own people. That's the fact. Brian Armstrong is is writing his name on checks to people who should be in prison. Sorry. I I don't know what else to say about that. Uh, The hacking team members that have been hired by Coinbase have been involved in some of the shadiest shit that the internet has ever known. And it looks like they're unapologetic about it. And at least we've got one news agency that is not reporting on it as if that context of their past is not really all that important because it's really important to understand who Brian Armstrong is employing at Coinbase, right? Um, I guess we should probably talk a little bit about the delete Coinbase hashtag movement. Oh my God. <laughs> Damn. Um, let's, yeah, I want to read Adam Gibson at waxwing underscore underscore uh, his tweet. He's got three in a row. Um, he says, sent funds at 160 sat per WU to Coinbase to pay for Expedia flight expired after 15 minutes approximately 45 minutes later one conf- or 45 minutes and one confirmation later get message from coinbase quote refunded sign in to claim now here's where it gets dicey folks i never used coinbase and never want to this is disgraceful forced to create a coinbase account to get my money To clarify in simple terms, used Expedia to pay for flight several hundred dollars, no choice but to use Coinbase, paid a very sensible fee. It confirmed in one hour, maybe less. Coinbase refused to recognize it, then demands I create an account to get my money back. All right, and his third tweet in this is a correction. It just says, sorry, it was a hotel, not a flight. In either event, this guy... 
somehow, and I've I've asked him I've asked him to clarify the why he had to use Coinbase uh, through Expedia. I, I'm not sure. I don't use Expedia, and last time I used Expedia, I, I you know paid with a Visa card. Uh, I because I wasn't in that mindset of paying for anything with Bitcoin, and I kind of still am not. I don't really want to spend my Bitcoin in either event. I don't know the connection. Um, as to what's going on. But if, if what he's saying on the back end of this argument is correct, that somehow or another Coinbase just decided to say, you know what, we yeah, we told you you're going to be able to do this, but yeah, later on we decided no. Um, yeah, so we're, we've completely refunded your money, but in order to get it, you, you, you got you to gotta create a, a Coinbase account and sign in, which means full KYC AML. For those of you who don't know, that's, Know your customer slash anti-money laundering laws, uh, which we uh, were all introduced to right after 9-11. Yeah, it was almost immediate. Uh, I think it was within the year that uh, as a customer of a bank doing any kind of monetary transactions, you are going to have to show full-blown ID to everyone. Everybody was under the gun. Now, Wells Fargo was doing it, you know, major banks have been doing it for years, but all the small guys that had anything to do with money transactions that that weren't, you know, didn't have to do this, now they all got to do it, even for just a couple of hundred bucks. And so now Adam Gibson, if he wants his money back, is going to have to send a picture of his driver's license front and back. I, I don't know if he's U.S., um, if he's like some other national that can, you know, access Coinbase, then it's going to be, you know, maybe his passport. I don't know. Whatever identification, he's going to have to scan that or take a picture of it with his phone, front and back or all pages or whatever, and send it to Coinbase. And then uh, two or three days later, they'll get back to him as to whether or not they've activated his account. But even if he closes, does his business and closes it right after, they've got all his information on file. And as yet, so Coinbase is now, you know, has been a honeypot for hackers. And so far, I mean, just if you can just get their customer information database and not even anything about the coins that those customers hold, that is a gold mine on the black market, right? So now they're forcing people that don't want to have anything to do with Coinbase at all have to open up and get KYC AML, which is going to add even more data to that database honeypot, making it even a larger target. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Uh, Coinbase is not a good player. And right now there is a massive move uh, for people to go and do the delete Coinbase thing. And what some people are starting to uh, intimate is that Coinbase is not allowing them to close their accounts because they have these tiny itty bitty trace amounts of coins in some wallet. And, you know, there's like, I don't know how many coins are serviced by Coinbase, probably 20. I don't know. Anyway, in some of those wallets, there's this stuff called dust, which are like, like fractions and fractions, you know, fractions of fractions of these coins. And they're just not going to let you close those accounts with these. They have to be completely clean to so, I guess, so many decimal points, places. I don't know how they're actually doing that. So uh, there's a movement going on called Delete Coinbase where you go in and you send your dust to another Coinbase user who is also part of the movement who hasn't closed their account yet. 
but is waiting to close their account and but will only close their account if they get dust from another Coinbase customer and then get confirmation that that customer has closed their account from that customer through either Twitter or I don't know, like some other method. I'm not exactly sure. And then that customer takes what they've collected, which is what they got from the first customer, and they send it on to another Coinbase customer. And then that person deletes their account and it just goes on and on and on. And I'm seeing a whole bunch of delete Coinbase stuff across my feed. Hundreds, hundreds of delete Coinbase messages are coming across my feeds and uh, so I don't, you know, with, with since they listed Ripple, I don't know if they're actually going to see a difference in the amount of customers they have, because now that all the Ripple heads know that Brian Armstrong is on their side, they're gonna, they're they're going to open up Coinbase accounts specifically, probably to get to Coinbase Pro, so that they can, I don't know, trade, get a hold of the trading pairs for Ripple versus whatever other coin that there is or versus us dollar. I don't know, but it's a, it seems to be growing in, uh, in weight as far as, uh, as far as this goes. Um, all right. So yeah, delete Coinbase. If you can delete Coinbase and just use cash app to, uh, to buy Bitcoin and pretty soon I'm pretty sure, you know, I would imagine Jack is going to have a way to, uh, be able to cash out your Bitcoin directly. Um, you may, or like to actual cash that you can withdraw instead of using, using it on your credit card from the cash app card or something like that. Anyway, uh, Coinbase is just in my, in my mind, they've gone past the event horizon with, um, with this whole hacking team debacle. And now they're circling the drain as far as the, in, in so far that they've got a major movement against them to just close, close the accounts that started it, that whole thing, the whole delete Coinbase campaign started when, when Brian Armstrong hired the hacking team guys. And the very first thing that happened is people weren't allowed to close their accounts because there was dust. And the first thing that happened after that is they immediately said, we'll do something like the LN trust chain and, and they call it delete Coinbase trust chain. So that, I don't know, man, that kind of acceleration of being pissed, you know, of getting, having your customers pissed off at you doesn't sound like a healthy future for Coinbase. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and, and get into some of these last things. All right. So this uh, Bitcoin or Bitcoin magazine has updated their piece that they started, I guess, uh, February the 25th on Quadriga CX and the million dollar questions, what we do and, and don't know. And uh, I, I've read a lot of that to you, but they, they've updated it. And uh, apparently as of today, cryptocurrency exchange Kraken has launched a bounty campaign for the ongoing Quadriga CX investigation. The exchange is offering a reward of 100K to anyone who can provide tips, evidence that will lead law enforcement to the missing funds. And then it gives a, a submissions link. So you can, uh, if you have any, if you have any credible information regarding the Quadriga CX thing, um, then yeah, there's a link for you to, to be able to participate in that. All right. So with, with that out of the way, uh, this article's, this article's huge and apparently has been updated quite, uh, quite a bit. 
Um, the part that I want to read uh, from this uh, from this article is the trouble brewing uh, section. Gerald Cotton died unexpectedly on December 9th, 2018, while vacationing in India. His sudden death has been framed as the culmination of Cotton's seven-year battle with Crohn's disease, though Cotton's death at the age of 30 is rare for people with the disease. He passed away while under care at Fortis Escorts Hospital in Jaipur, India, where he was reportedly honeymooning with his newly wedded wife, Jennifer Robertson, when he had some extreme gastrointestinal pain. Though Dr. Sharma originally diagnosed traveler's diarrhea on Cotton's first visit to the hospital, Cotton's condition quickly deteriorated. 24 hours later after being readmitted, Cotton died of cardiac arrest induced by septic shock when his intestines were perforated the death report notes. I'm going to stop right there for a little bit because I didn't realize that Mr. Cotton was only 30 years old. I also didn't realize that he was on his honeymoon with his newly wedded wife, who's already been who who it has already been suggested is coming was commingling or was party to commingling of funds from Quadriga CX to her own private business that had nothing to do with Quadriga CX, at least legally, because her business is under her name and, and Quadriga CX's, you know, business was under the husband's name. And, you know, the fact that they're married now and we're obviously dating before doesn't matter. However, she was paying some of the things that needed to be paid for Quadriga's business activities from her business's account, not Quadriga's account. And right at that point, that's all. That is a, that's a bag of dog shit you just don't want to open. You don't ever want to commingle funds ever, 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 because now her own private business will come under scrutiny when this thing goes to court, and it probably will. But to die at 30 of Crohn's disease, which means that he was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when he was 23, if he had been battling it for seven years, to die at 30 of Crohn's disease within at such an acute, you know, the onset was so acute that he died within 24 hours of being readmitted. So within two days... He started having he he had gastrointestinal problems in 48 hours he was dead of a perforated intestine. I mean, I I I do understand that there's some issues that the issues with Crohn's disease are intestinal, but perforated intestine, um, you know, maybe when you were older and you had lived with this thing for like 20, 25 years, maybe. Anyway, so there's there's something funny about that and the fact that they were on that they had just gotten married and and all of a sudden he passed. I don't know, man. It just God, it seems so weird. And it gets weirder. The doctor told the Globe and Mail. <clears throat> sorry, the doctor told the Globe and Mail that Cotton's death was medically unusual, particularly the way his condition dramatically worsened so rapidly. He and his staff are even a bit unsure about the diagnosis. No autopsy was performed, and the apparent mysteries surrounding Cotton's death became more complicated when he was prepped for burial. Dr. Semi Mehra 
an embalming specialist at Mahatma Gandhi Medical College and Hospital, whom Robertson attempted to employ for Cotton's embalming, refused because the co- the body came from the hotel the company the couple were honeymooning at instead of from the hospital where Cotton passed. Quote, that guy told me the body will come from the hotel. I said, why the hotel? I'm not taking any body from the hotel. It should come from Fortis, Dr. Mehra told the Globe and Mail. She would direct them to a public medical college in the area who would ultimately embalm the deceased crypto tycoon, the Globe and Mail reports. Cotton's death left the company's leadership without a clear successor, and Cotton left no directions for appointing a new CEO, an oversight that complicates the exchange, exchange's apparent inability to access cold wallet funds. And it just, it, it just, it's like a sinking ship from there. Okay, so we're going to leave it at that. But I mean, you got a guy who's only had been diagnosed for Crohn's for seven years. He's still really, really young. He's only 30 years old. He's just married, goes to India, has diarrhea. 48 hours later, he's dead from perforated intestines. And the and so he dies at the hospital and somehow his body ends up back at the hotel before it go is requested before an embalming specialist is is requested to do the preparation of the of the corpse and that particular person says no it has to come from the hospital i this this leads me to believe that that it's possible that one of two things happened he either has faked his own death and I, I have yet to see pictures of the body. Like I had said before, I know it's morbid, but unless I see that dude on a slab connected to every single freaking blood pressure monitor and heart monitor and EKG, and the whole damn room is filled with screens with flat lines. And even then, I'm probably not going to actually believe it because this is too weird. Everything about this is not right. There's nothing about this that's right. Okay, so anyway, the, the other thing that can happen is that his new wife killed his ass. I, I, I don't know what, what I don't know anything that lies in the middle that makes any sense. This entire thing, a book has got to be written or a movie has got to be made or both or, or something because you can't write good fiction like this. It's almost impossible. Possible to come up with storylines that have this many twists and turns and not, <laughs> it's almost impossible to write. So this is a case where, you know, reality is stranger than the fiction. Anyway, uh, the last thing that is in the morning roundup is this, uh, <clears throat> this audio that I'm going to give you from Moises Rendon, um, who was uh, sitting in front of Congress talking about Venezuela and cryptocurrency. And I thought it was interesting, so I'm going to play it for you now. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the question. Um, I have done some research on, on finding new methods to try to provide humanitarian aid in Venezuela. Um, it, very interestingly, the use of new technologies, specifically the use of cryptocurrency, is already playing a role in Venezuela. We brought groups from the ground in Venezuela that are receiving donations through cryptocurrency and they're using those donations to buy food and medicine and distribute it within Venezuela. This is increasingly happening because Venezuela has a hyperinflation. 
um, and, 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 and the donations to get into the country is really limited, really repressive, right? So that's where the use of cryptocurrency is shedding a light of how we can use that as a method to get aid in a way that we probably haven't seen before. So I, I think looking into those, and, and the benefits are countless. I mean, it's transparent, it's censorship resistant, it's borderless, and it's empowering the people to use their own resources, right? To, because it's, it's direct. So I, I will look at that as, as a way to, because again, we need to think out of the bots here. And, and I think that's one of those tools that can maybe help. Okay, so there you go. Um, this is Moises Rendon. You can find him at M-O-I-S-E-S-R-E-N-D-O-N, all one word. Uh, talking to talking to our Congress about the use of cryptocurrency with a complete level head and a complete straight face, this stuff really can help. Um, so now we're getting we're getting more and more of these people talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency at at the higher levels in government, and it's interesting. It's it's inter- It's definitely going to be interesting in the Marty's bent today because uh, there's some more audio that I'm going to introduce to you. Um, <clears throat> about that. But anyway, we're, we're seeing a pattern of more and more people just openly talking about it. Like it's why, are, why aren't we doing this? Why, why aren't we using this technology to help our uh, countrymen out in uh, places like Venezuela in either event, that's going to do it for your morning roundup. Vital statistics brought to you from brought to you by BitInfoCharts.com. Bitcoin is at three thousand eight hundred forty-two on average. Its high is going to be over at Bitfinex at three thousand nine hundred thirty-one, and its low is going to be over there at Simex at three thousand eight hundred twenty-one. Three hundred fifty thousand three hundred fifty thousand bitcoins have been made over the last twenty-four or transferred over the last twenty-four hours, with about fifteen thousand bitcoins transferred per hour. Uh, One point five million BTC has been sent in those transactions. <clears throat> um, average cent per hour is sixty-one thousand BTC. The average transaction value is four point one one BTC, with a median transaction value of zero point zero two nine BTC, right around one hundred and fifteen bucks. Block time is low. I can imagine what we're going to see next is going to be a loss of hash rate. We're at eight minutes and forty-seven seconds. Wow, that's pretty. That's pretty low. So it looks like uh, no. I mean gained. Uh, Gained hash power. That's that's what that's what would. I'm sorry. That's what would do it. Not enough coffee. Uh, reward per block. It looks like fees on a per block basis is 0.179 BTC for a total of right at 30 BTC in fees over the last 24 hours. And yeah, the hash rate did rise 8 percent in 24 hours, and we are at 48.6 exahashes per second. Last GitHub commit to the code was today. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Ethereum's at 136, Litecoin's at 48, Bcash is at 132, BSV is at 67, Ethereum Classic is at four and a quarter, Dogecoin is at 0.002, and at 27,685 transactions in the last 24 hours, 
it smokes the addition of Bcash's 13,000 and BSV's 5,000 transactions. So yet on another day, uh, another another day that Dogecoin, the joke coin from Jacks uh, from Mr. Jackson, is crushing Bcash and BSV in the amount of transactions made in the last 24 hours. That'll be it for your vital statistics. Okay, this is Marty's Bent for Friday, March the 1st, 2019, issue number 430, titled, This Man Looks Scared. Okay, before I get into that, since this is, yeah, this the, the audio that I'm going to play you before I get into Marty's Bent on this, um, the, he, it, Marty has put in a, a, a snippet from yet Congress in this pati- in, you know, particular, the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell is being asked about his thoughts on cryptocurrency. But this clip is more about um, this. This clip is actually being looked at by a body language specialist, and she's given her commentary over the top of reading the person's uh, Fed Chairman Powell's uh, body language, his facial expressions, and sort of, you know, kind of getting into um, commenting on what she thinks this means given her level of expertise as somebody who analyzes body language. So let, let's uh, let's give this one a listen. But before we do, since it is a Federal Reserve Chairman talking to the United States government, let's have a little bit of musical interlude to set us in the mood. The last question, just a little bit off the cuff, um, regarding cryptocurrency. I know the Securities Exchange Commission one is is currently regulating it. Do you have any position or thoughts regarding, from a monetary policy standpoint, the impact of cryptocurrency? I just thought this was a nice nugget. (laughs) You know, from a, uh, it's. Now, he already is starting to look like he's petting himself behind that little sign again. And the look on his face at this very moment, that tight lip, like, mm, mm, this touchy subject, cryptocurrency. From a monetary policy standpoint, the implications are not large, certainly in the near term. Um, people are not using cryptocurrencies in large size for payments, for example. Uh, it's really been more of a store of value for some, and you can see that it's highly volatile. So I, th- I think it's not, uh, it's not attracting a lot of success there. We can we can talk about it more offline. Okay, thank you. The fact that he doesn't want to talk about it in public is telling in and of itself. And go back and look at that one more time. From a monetary policy standpoint, the implications are not large, certainly in the near term. Um, people are not using cryptocurrencies in 
large size. For- so he's looking at him and then he rolls his head. It's it's not a huge move, but he rolls it towards his right and then comes back center. It's one of those touchy subjects. It's touchy. Also, listen to words. It's a touchy subject. He's stressed on it. In the near future, it's not an issue. That the long-term future, hmm, it's a touchy subject. You can see that it's highly volatile, so I, th- I think it's not uh, it's not attracting a lot of success there. We can we can talk about it more offline. Okay. It's actually got some some doing in that memory bank when discussing this. I'll go back to that. A lot of success there. And you can see that it's highly volatile, so I, th- I think it's not uh, it's not attracting. A lot of success there. We can we can talk about it more offline. Okay. He did go real still on that on not a lot of success there, and his compadres behind him are blinking. That stresses them as well. Hmm. I see competition in your future. So let's find out what Marty has to say about it. Here's an interesting video that was brought to my attention earlier this morning that I think is worthwhile sharing with you, freaks. Body language analysis of Fed Chairman Powell when asked about his thoughts on cryptocurrency. Dude seems pretty uncomfortable if you ask Uncle Marty. On top of that, he seems to have fallen into the trap of expecting that Bitcoin, or uh, of expecting that Bitcoin, if it is to be successful, will be everything it can be in the future out of the box. Saying that he's not particularly worried about cryptocurrency in the short term due to the volatile nature of the nascent digital money, and saying that he'd prefer to talk about it outside of the hearing. If we're going strictly off body language, and posturing via verbal language, it seems as though this is a topic that irks Chairman Powell, a topic that lingers in the back of his mind as he attempts to traverse the seas of a failing monetary policy. I, for one, am happy to see this make him uncomfortable. It means Bitcoin is on to something. Uh, next se- last section in the Marty's Bent is different, is presented without comment. And it is simply a tweet from uh, Matt Odell at Matt underscore Odell, February the 27th, quote unquote, Square, the payments unicorn led by Bitcoin believer Jack Dorsey, reported earnings for the fourth quarter Wednesday evening. In total, the firm sold over $166 million worth of Bitcoin in 2018 and 52.5 million this quarter alone. And he's uh, quoting from a, the blockcrypto.com news story about this. My God almighty, $166 million last year and $52 million just in this quarter alone. Man, that is freaking impressive. Final thought, San Francisco sunrises are pretty nectar. I don't know. I've never seen a San Francisco sunrise, but I have seen a San Diego run sunrise. And yeah, it's pretty nice, man. Pretty damn nice. Anyway, so you can uh, find Marty Bent at Marty Bent. Uh, follow, uh, uh, go, if you're not listening to Tales from the Crypt, which is Marty Bent's uh, podcast, please do. It's it's really good. <laughs> very, very, very good. And then on Fridays, Thursdays or Fridays, somewhere around there, he does rabbit hole recap with uh, this guy, Matt Odell, and those are always fun too. You can find Tales from the Crypt at TFC, or I'm sorry, TFT21 on Twitter. And from there, you'll you'll be able to to find it. Anyway, I want to thank Marty Bent for letting me read Marty's Bent. We'll read another Marty's Bent when Marty Bent gets around to writing another Marty's Bent. Daily Trainwrecked is brought to you by the New York Times, who says, 
Facebook and Telegram are hoping to succeed where Bitcoin failed. Yeah, this brilliant piece of of editorial class was brought to you by Nathaniel Popper and Mike Isaac. Um, Let's... Let's get into some of it. You guys, if you have been under a rock, then you know, uh, then you don't know what's going on. So for those who have been under a rock, I'll, I'll read a little bit of this to you just to, to get the uh, context. Some of the world's biggest internet messaging companies are hoping to succeed where cryptocurrency startups have failed by introducing mainstream consumers to the alternative world of digital coins. The internet outfits, including Facebook, Telegram, and Signal, are planning to roll out new cryptocurrencies over the next year that are meant to allow users to send money to contacts on their messaging systems like a Venmo or PayPal that can move across international borders. And I'm going to stop right there because it's not going to move across international borders without permission. Let me say that again. Whatever these jokers come up with is not going to be permissionless. You're going to be KYC AML'd out the wazoo, and any coins that you hold are going to be tracked, double tracked, and triple tracked because that's just the that's just the nature of these companies. And then they're going to get into the same shit that PayPal got into where they just started denying people, you know, closing their accounts because they don't like Alex Jones or closing their accounts because they don't like, um, oh, I don't know, uh, anybody who's not a dyed-in-the-wool, blue-haired liberal apparently is not what PayPal, are the people that PayPal really cater to and anybody outside of that realm is persona non grata, so therefore they get their PayPals closed without any chance of maybe even recovering their funds or at least any chance of ever using PayPal ever again. So if anybody here is like jumping up and down about Facebook coin, um, let me tell you this. You got, you got guys that are some of the saltiest assholes on the face of the planet that have been trading cryptocurrencies for 10 years. Now let's say, let's give it eight. Let's say it, let's say it took two years and then all of us, you know, we got the first place, first places where we can trade. And then you get more and more and more exchanges coming up, more and more coin pairs. There are people that have been down in the trenches getting shelled day after day after day on trading pairs and know exactly what triggers to pull and know exactly how to manipulate social media. And they do this shit all the time and they're freaking good at it. And if you think Facebook coin isn't going to come under the, ex- isn't going to be shorted into the ground after, after yeah, it'll pump. Oh yeah, it'll pump. So yeah, you could buy Facebook, Facebook coin when it comes out and it would be a good deal. The problem is when do you sell at that point? You got to be a technical analysis guy. You got to be able to I'll read charts and see the psychology of the masses in those charts to be able to figure out because it, it, the important time is not the time to buy. The important time is the time to sell. Unless you're a real Bitcoiner and you just hodl, you just figure out at that point, the, the, the time, the, the important time is to figure out the time to buy, but you don't worry about the time to sell. You know, that makes it a little bit easier. This one, man, this shit's going to be a bloodbath. 
Signal's going to be shorted into the ground. Telegram's going to be shorted into the ground. And Facebook is going to be shorted into the ground because these guys that have been in the trenches of coin exchanges for the last eight years don't give a shit. They do not care. They do not care. They do not care. And they know how to build and manipulate bots. They know how to build and manipulate social media bases. They know how to, they know how to work the system. And it's going to be easy pickings with these guys. And if it's not, then all that means is that they didn't release a cryptocurrency at all. If somehow or another, Facebook coin is not listed on Binance or BitMEX at 100 times leverage, uh, then it's then it's not part of this particular world and you don't have to worry about it. But even if it is, and even if it, it survives getting shorted into the ground by the guys in the trenches, they're not going to let you just give some money to some guy in Iran. Okay, this, so this, this statement from the New York Times about international borders, forget about it, dude. Forget about it. You might as well be dealing with Wells Fargo and you're right back to this shit. So the only value that this thing could possibly have, these things could possibly have, is that you buy it right when they release it, but more importantly, you know when to dump it because those dudes in the trenches are not going to wait very, very long. And they're just going to let all, they're going to rain hell down upon any coin pairs with Facebook, Signal, or Telegram. Anyway, that's going to do it for your daily train wreck. Terrible Joke Corner is again brought to you by Bad Joke Cat. Many people are worrying about the effects of genetically modified crops. Quote, there is no proof of any adverse effects, end quote, said one carrot. All right, this is probably not all that good of a bad joke. I, I get it. It's it's a little too long and, eh, you know, but still, it's like, oh, we got, a, we got ourselves a talking carrot. Genetically modified organisms are completely safe. Anyway, that's your terrible joke corner from Bad Joke Cat. I'm done. Have a good weekend, guys, and I will see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.